Sure, modern Christians may not have been commanded to fast, but that doesn't mean that they don't have to fast. It's up to each of God's people to carefully consider whether the Lord would be glorified with their fasting, since His people have always fasted. The key is not to be distracted by all the wrong reasons to fast. Followers of Christ need to understand the only biblical reason for fasting, as well as the secondary reasons that grow from the first. Only then can God's people be sure their everyday fasts please the Lord. And doesn't He deserve to be pleased? The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for His soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer Him. And He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brewster, and this is the Celebration of God. Welcome back to the year-long celebration of God's look into the nature and importance of fasting in the life of a believer. But since this is part two of that discussion, I want to encourage you to listen to part one, where we step through what the Bible really has to say about the subject. It was that show that established whether or not modern Christians need to fast in the first place. So be sure to start there. And if you're new to the show, I also want to invite you to follow me, A.M. Brewster, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you use social media, I hope it to be a blessing, encouragement, challenge, and good time while you're there. Also, if you're new to the show, make sure you go to celebrationofgod.com and listen to our introductory episodes. And while you're there, you can check out today's episode notes, transcript, and fasting resources, and hopefully they are going to be valuable for you. And now let's talk about what fasting looks like in the daily life of a believer, what we like to call the everydays. Having laid the foundation for fasting in our last episode, I want today to be all about application. However, we need to focus on something I merely introduced last time. This is the most important part of any conversation about fasting. We will never do a fast correctly if we don't first tether the application to the correct motivation. Number one, the main purpose of fasting. Last time I quoted Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones when he said, fasting is voluntary abstinence from physical nourishment for special spiritual purposes. Fasting that matters is 100% all about God and God alone. It's not about rules, traditions, man's expectations, health benefits, personal pleasure, or anything else. It must be about God's expectations and God's pleasure. Now, in order to do this, we need to recognize who God truly is and respond to that reality. We definitely mustn't force on God that which he's never commanded or that which contradicts his character. This means that fasting definitely cannot be about asceticism. God doesn't expect us to hurt ourselves in some legalistic way to earn his favor. Yes, we need to deny ourselves, radically amputate anything in our lives that compels us to sin, and be peculiar in this world, but we don't do any of that because the body needs to be punished or because God wants us to burn the sin out of our souls or because he likes to see us in pain or because we need to somehow make him happy with us. All of those ideas run contrary to who God is. We deny ourselves and follow him because that's what he deserves. In addition to that, it's foolish to lean on our own understanding and man's wisdom, so we mustn't make fasting about asceticism. But it can't merely be about abstinence either. We're not more holy because we avoid certain types of food and drink. God himself created everything good for our consumption and use. In Genesis 1 and 2, he told Adam and Eve to eat freely from the garden with only one exception, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree was guaranteed to harm them, but everything else was for their good. 
Later in Genesis 9-3, he told Noah's family, Every moving thing that is alive shall be good for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And even though the Lord limited the nation of Israel's diet, that doesn't impact modern Christians. In Acts 11, Peter reveals how the Lord cleansed all the previously unclean foods and gave his people permission, even a command, to eat them. Paul also teaches that meat offered to idols is not bad for us physically. Therefore, you cannot argue from Scripture that God is glorified simply because you stop eating beneficial foods. Of course, none of this is to say that eating modern foods with no nutritional value is okay or that eating too much food is allowable. In order to glorify God with our eating and drinking, we need to be good stewards of our health. By all means, please listen to episode 109, Celebrating God with Your Food, to learn more about these concepts. So fasting is not about painful asceticism, it's not about mere abstinence, and it's not some religious act. Doing things just to do them is mindless. In Matthew 6, 7, Jesus said, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus then goes on to provide a formula for our prayers that is thought out and purposeful. Of course, I hope the irony of the fact that there are millions of people in this world who mindlessly repeat the disciples' prayer is not lost on you. Anyway, whatever we do, it must be done in faith, and faith is not some nebulous religious idea or blank state of mind. Faith equals trust. We do it because we believe that it's the only thing we can do in this moment that will obey God and please Him. And that faith must not be rooted in man's ideas or our feelings. It has to find its foundation in the Bible. We trust God's Word, and we obey on purpose. This has strong implications on the fact that God doesn't command us to fast, but He assumes we will. This is not a simple rule to be followed on certain days and with certain foods. It's going to require intentional, careful thought and application in order for it to be done in faith. That means that our fasting, whether during a holiday or every day, needs to be done because we believe that we must do it in order to obey and please God. By the way, for those of you to whom these concepts may be new, pleasing the Lord is not synonymous with earning His favor. God loves us. No amount of disobedience can change that, and no amount of obedience will ever earn more of his favor. However, God is pleased by our obedience, and he's grieved by our disobedience. Obeying and pleasing God should be the goal of everything we do in life. Colossians 1.10 reads, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if fasting is not painful asceticism, mere abstinence, or a religious act, what is it? Christ-honoring fasting is about replacement and redirection. We're not trying to hurt ourselves. We're not trying to simply avoid something. We're not just hoping to do something. We're consciously choosing to replace our eating and drinking time with an intentionally Godward focus. Now, what that Godward focus looks like depends on the need of the moment. Those specific motivations are the secondary purposes of fasting about which we'll talk next— For now, engrave this on your mind. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from physical sustenance to intentionally pursue spiritual sustenance. Let me repeat that. Fasting is intentionally abstaining from physical sustenance to intentionally pursue spiritual sustenance. But what exactly is that spiritual sustenance? Most broadly, spiritual sustenance starts with prayer and meditation on God's Word. It can also include fellowship with God's people, partaking in the Lord's Supper, praising God in song, and so on. But today we're going to focus primarily on praying and Bible meditation as the spiritual sustenance we're pursuing during our fast. 
From there, the content of our prayers and the focus of our meditation depends on these secondary purposes. So let's consider number two, the secondary purposes of fasting. Allow me to restate the fact that none of the secondary purposes of fasting involve earning God's favor. We are made acceptable to God through the work of Jesus Christ alone. So let's be clear. Christian fasting, biblical fasting, has a spiritual purpose. If fasting is done for worldly purposes, such as weight control, a pre-operation dictate, physical training, saving money, or political protest, then it isn't a Christian fast. As we saw last time, in the Old Testament, fasting was often coupled with grief, penitence, humility, and neediness. But when we look at all of the biblical accounts of fasting, we see there are at least 10 reasons to fast that all fall under the main purpose for fasting. And again, none of these purposes involve earning God's favor. As you can tell, I'm trying really hard to get it out of our heads that fasting impresses God. I'm hammering this because some of you have come out of Catholicism and other religious traditions that have beaten into your minds the idea that you need to be good in order to earn God's favor, but that is a lie from hell. Okay, I think I've made that point supremely clear, so let's consider the 10 good reasons to fast and how we can utilize them during our everydays. Again, if you're new to the show, we like to distinguish between the holidays and the everydays. The holidays are the high days, and the everydays encompass everything else, including the low moments. Number one, fast to strengthen prayer. In Ezra 8, 21 through 23, we read, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our, our, our possessions. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. Since the Bible does not teach that fasting is a kind of spiritual hunger strike that compels God to do our bidding, fasting is not intended to change God's hearing, it's intended to change our praying. Christians who pray while fasting communicate that they are truly in earnest and are expressing that earnestness in a divinely appointed way. And again, God knows our hearts. This is sometimes really a way to expose our hearts for ourselves, to prove to ourselves how earnest we really are. There's an English word in the Bible called supplication. It shows up in both Testaments, and the meaning of the Hebrew and Greek words beautifully illustrate the prayers of someone who is fasting. Merriam-Webster defines supplicate as to make a humble entreaty. I like the definition of supplication provided by Oxford Languages. It says supplication is the action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. For me, besides self-control, the spiritual discipline that has strengthened the most when I fasted has been my prayer life. I have genuinely learned how to supplicate because instead of eating, I have removed myself from the meal and dedicated that time to prayer. When I felt hunger pangs throughout the day, I stopped to entreat the Lord. And no, the entreaty had nothing to do with asking for the hunger pangs to go away. The supplication had to do with the specific need of the moment and the secondary purpose of the fast. And I've used that time to pray for many things, most of which are outlined below. For starters, though, when done correctly, fasting is a marvelous way to strengthen your prayer life. And this shouldn't surprise us at all, for many of the examples of fasting in the scripture are tied directly to intense prayer. One Old Testament example comes from Daniel 9.3, which reads, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And in the New Testament, Acts 14.23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. If we're eating less, but we're not praying more, I think we're doing something wrong. I'm going to argue that the vast majority of the fasts that you do in your life can and should have a massive impact on the strength of your prayer life. This means that you may choose to fast simply because you recognize that your prayer life needs to grow. 
Or you may fast in conjunction with a dedicated time of prayer for something else. For example, number two, fast to seek God's guidance. Judges 20, 26 through 28 says, Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Now, please understand, God doesn't interact with his people today in all the exact same ways he did in the past. Phinehas did not have the completed canon of God's word the way we do. The Old Testament Jews had a different relationship with God. This means that fasting doesn't ensure clear guidance, but it does make us more sensitive to God. It helps us tune out the world and focus on the Lord that we might listen more attentively to his word. And we also don't pray for guidance expecting God to answer us verbally. We pray as we study and meditate on the Bible. In Psalm 119.18, David prayed, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. We need the Holy Spirit's illumination to understand and correctly apply the scriptures. And fasting is a wonderful way to devote ourselves to studying and meditating on them. Time can also be dedicated to supplicating the Lord that he would guide our counselors to wisely advise us in the truth. I've definitely fasted for these reasons before. Before leaving my former ministry and working full-time for Truth Love Family, I fasted and prayed for three days. During meals and any time I was hungry, I asked the Lord to use his word to show me how I needed to obey his clear commands. I asked the Holy Spirit to help me correctly apply the principles that apply to our decision. I also asked the Lord to lead my many counselors in his truth. And like David in Psalm 139.24, I prayed, See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way, so that I, I would not lean on my own understanding. Did God send a divine post-it note, vision, audible voice, or sign? No but I had complete confidence that my decision was in line with God's revealed word and consistent with its principles. Number three, fast to seek deliverance or protection. In 2 Chronicles 20, 2-4, we read, Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is Engedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to help to seek from help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Fasting can be a line of defense against persecution from family, schoolmates, neighbors, co-workers, or other Christians. It can also accompany asking God to protect us from storms and diseases and the like. Again, no amount of fasting will bend God to your desire, but it puts us in the best place to respect who God is and recognize that what he does is best. And even when we aren't protected from physical harm the way that we may have wanted, we can, number four, fast to express grief. This can include grief over calamities. In 2 Samuel 1, 11-12, we learn that David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. But it should also include grief over sin. Confession of sin isn't a simple mouthing of words. Biblical confession involves grief over the sin committed. And inasmuch as fasting can be an expression of that grief, it is never inappropriate. Don Whitney says, There have been a few occasions when I grieved so deeply over my sin that words alone seemed powerless to say to God what I wanted. And though it made me no more worthy of forgiveness, fasting communicated the grief and confession my words could not. But of course, we want to reject the temptation to think that our fasting somehow is paying for our sins. 
as 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for our sins once for all, that the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Our fasting should include much praise to God for how he has promised in 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In a similar way, we can, number five, fast to express repentance. In Joel 2.12, God says, Return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. I have fasted for these reasons as well. I have fasted out of grief, and I fasted because I was broken about my sin. But although I was hungry for food, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.6 would ring in my ears, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And that's what I needed in my life. I knew that God provided joy and peace and contentment and gratitude even in difficult times. I knew that God was quick to forgive, and I knew that God had already given me everything I needed for life and godliness in his word. By the way, quite often in scripture you will read about fasting and sackcloth and ashes and tearing of clothes like we've already seen. Now, just like we're not commanded to fast, we're also not commanded to fast in sackcloth and ashes or tear our clothes. Most of the examples of this come from the Old Testament, but the two times it's mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus was suggesting that... Uh, had two pagan cities of the day seen the miracles that Jesus performed in the Jewish towns, they would have, quote, repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Here's why I am bringing this up. There is nothing inherently holy or cleansing about wearing burlap or covering yourself in ashes, but this was a commonly accepted liturgy of the day. Liturgy refers to forms and formulas of worship. We don't have time to discuss it in great detail here, but liturgy was created into man because it's important to God. But the blessing doesn't come through the external practice. The blessing comes through the internal submission to God that exemplifies itself through the external practice. They must not be divorced from each other. God's not instantly pleased because I tear my clothes and throw on a burlap sack and I sit in ashes. No, but the true, genuine humility and submission to God and the grief over my sin that would produce such an action, that pleases him. And of course, it produces that action. Now, I'm bringing all this up here because fasting, just like sackcloth and ashes, is a liturgical choice that doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself, but is meant to give voice to our spiritual dependence on God that is far more powerful than mere words. By the way, though I'm not saying you have to fast and repent in sackcloth and ashes for extreme grief and repentance, I'm also not saying that it would be a bad idea if done with the right motivations. All right, though the next category can stand alone, all of these fasts are part of how we can, number six, fast to humble ourselves before God. Though we hardly ever turn to Ahab as a good example, in 1 Kings 21, 27-29, we read, It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. John Calvin said about fasting, Since this is a holy exercise, both for the humbling of men and for the confession of humility, why should we use it less than the ancients did in similar need? I can tell you with all my heart, I need to be more humble. Uh, our entire last series should have revealed to most of us that we are far more proud and controlling than we may have previously realized. Thankfully, God's word tells us how we can be humble, and fasting can play a wonderful part in it. And then we have number seven, fast to express concern for the work of God. Earlier, we read Daniel 9.3, but we didn't know why Daniel was fasting. 
Verse 2 tells us, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Now, I don't want anyone to hear this and think that we should fast all day, every day, as an expression of concern for all of God's work. On occasion, however, God does give us so great a concern for his work that fasting may be an appropriate response. Number eight, fast to minister to the needs of others. In Isaiah 58, 6-7, God says, Is this not the fast which I choose, to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Fasting cannot be compartmentalized from the rest of our lives. As we've observed in episodes past, the spiritual disciplines are not only for our sake, but for the sake of others, too. If we give up some meals by fasting, we can use that time and money to minister to others. I can say I haven't ever fasted for this reason, but it definitely intrigues me. Number nine, fast to fight temptation and strengthen the spiritual disciplines. Listen, if this was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. As was already mentioned, fasting is a good exercise in self-discipline. Refraining from eating food can strengthen our ability to refrain from sin when we're tempted. If we train ourselves to accept this small suffering of fasting willingly, we'll be better able to accept other suffering for the sake of righteousness. This particular point has been aggressively illustrated in my own life. The spiritual discipline necessary to fast, especially for longer periods of time, is like a spiritual workout. As those muscles of spirit-empowered self-control are flexed and worked, they can be applied to overcoming other temptations as well. I can say with great surety that the seasons of greatest spiritual growth in my life have nearly always occurred during times of fasting. There are a few exceptions before I started taking fasting seriously, but the majority of them have included fasting. And again, this should make all the sense in the world. It's a time of focused attention on God, prayer, His Word, and intentional dependence on the Holy Spirit to accomplish the very difficult task of fasting. Those are very the very ingredients of spiritual maturity. By the way, if the specific sin over which we're grieving and desiring to repent happens to be gluttony and other forms of unhealthy eating, then yes, such a fast could also be motivated by returning to a healthier physical state, all to the glory of God. I've done this as well. I fasted because of my sin, but sometimes that sin was the poor stewardship of my body. In that instance, the fast not only turned my eyes to God and off myself, but it also resulted in reaching a more Christ-honoring state of health. Now again, in a biblical fast, weight loss or detoxifying shouldn't be the main focus, but if I'm overweight or toxic because of my sinful choices, then the health benefits are a legitimate tertiary blessing. By the way, regardless of your reason for fasting, you will experience health ramifications because of it, so I'm going to address this point in a moment. And finally, number 10, fast to celebrate God. To pursue a biblical fast must be the result of loving God more than you love food. We're denying our hunger for food to pursue our hunger for God because seeking more of Him is more important than eating. This is why hunger pangs during fasting are such a blessing. When you feel a hunger pang, let it remind you that your stomach is not your God and that your fasting honors the true God. We'll talk more about this point next time, but for now, I plan to create an image that encapsulates these 10 reasons to fast and make it available on our fasting page. All right, to summarize this section on good reasons to fast, remember that biblical fasting must always have the spiritual purpose, a God-centered, not self-centered purpose. And then there are many secondary God-centered purposes for fasting. 
So once we've identified our reason for fasting and the need for fasting, what comes next? Number three, the kinds of everyday fasts. A, the degree. A normal fast is an all food and often all beverage other than water fast. A partial fast would include giving up certain foods, beverages, or even activities. I believe a normal fast is the best, but the benefits of partial fasts are primarily for those who cannot stop eating regularly for health reasons. Obviously, you can always consult your health advisors if you have any specific questions. I have done partial fasts in the past. During one of my most recent fasts, I was limited to eating only green vegetables. I made that decision based off of some health needs, but also because I liked the symbolism. But we don't have time to go into all of that right now. I recommend a normal fast because it's the only one clearly and repeatedly illustrated in scripture. But that doesn't mean a partial fast is a bad idea. Letter B, the participants. Whether you choose to engage in this fast by yourself, with a small group like your family, or a larger group like the whole church, or the whole people of God around the world, it's up to you. But I believe it's the best to allow the secondary purposes of the fast to direct the number of participants. Personal grief and repentance should remain personal. Celebration is great for larger groups. Meditate carefully on why you're doing what you're doing and decide if it would be beneficial to other people in your life to join you. About a year ago, our whole church participated in corporate fasting and prayer for our pastor who was diagnosed with an extreme case of cancer. Letter C, the length. As we mentioned last time, there is no clear prescription for a length of a fast, and like with the last point, I believe it's best to allow this number to be dictated by the secondary purposes. A celebratory fast can last the length of the celebration or the prescribed length of the fasting period. A fast for guidance or protection can last as long as the guidance has not been determined or the protection is still necessary. I fasted for one meal, I fasted for one day, three days, and 21 days. I have not yet done a normal fast for 40 days, but it is my desire to do that one day. Letter D, the frequency. When it comes to the everyday fasts, I imagine most of them will be occasional fasts. You'll do them as the need arises. The celebratory fasts we're going to talk about next time tend to be more regular. Could you do a continuous fast? I suppose you could, but the examples in the Bible of this kind of fast were all instituted by God himself. He's the one who instituted the Nazarite vow. He's the one who decided that Samson and John the Baptist uh, could and could not eat. That's why I'm hesitant to proclaim that a lifelong fast of certain foods or beverages is a good idea. Honestly, they would be that would be extreme to say with the least. The point is, the kind of fast that you do should be determined by the specific secondary reasons. And since it's not commanded by God, you have the freedom to fast however you desire, all to the glory of God. I have a friend who fasts weekly. I know others who fast once a year. There are certain times of the year that I fast daily, and each of us have made these decisions in faith that the Lord would be glorified and His will would be accomplished. Obviously, if you've never fasted before, you may have a lot of questions about the whys and hows, and no doubt, a lot of those questions are going to have to do with the health implications. So, number four, the health implications of fasting. Obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, so I recommend you to do some personal research on this topic. As was already mentioned, there will be some of you, like my wife, who would experience negative side effects that would be harmful to your body if you fasted of all food. I don't believe that the Lord would be pleased by you harming your body in order to fast. However, for the majority of us who don't require food to survive for limited amounts of time, please uh, recognize that your hunger pangs, weight loss, and the potential short-lived fuzzy brain are not legitimate reasons to not fast. Those really aren't legitimate health concerns. 
As you research the benefits of fasting, you will find that it's actually a really good habit to get into strictly from a health perspective. There isn't a health professional in the world who doesn't recognize the legitimate health benefits of fasting, at least every now and then fasting, and quick, a quick Google search will reveal just that. As an example, according to Boulder Medical Center, fasting can boost cognitive performance, protect from obesity and associated chronic diseases, reduce inflammation, improve overall fitness, support weight loss, decrease the risk of metabolic diseases, and even benefit cancer patients. But honestly, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Regardless of the physical malady you may have, fasting can likely help address it. Now, I'm not saying this to make the health benefits one of the main goals for fasting. Yes, for purely practical reasons, you can do intermittent fasts and longer fasts as you seek to be a better steward of the body God gave you. And yes, though that obviously would be a manifestation of our worship of God, most of the things we do for our health are not intentionally and consciously intended to anchor our minds on communion with God in the moment. That is a biblical fast, intentionally abstaining from physical sustenance to intentionally pursue spiritual sustenance. You have to have that redirection, you have to have that substitution for it to be considered a biblical fast. Now, my point in bringing up the health concerns is really to just assuage the doubts you may be having. For some of you, the idea of skipping a meal makes you think you're going to die. Well, for the vast majority of you, you're not. It's actually just an evidence of how incredibly confused you are about what your body actually needs. And I say this from personal experience. If you had told me a while ago that I could go 21 days without any food whatsoever, I would have like scientifically agreed with you that technically it's possible, but I wouldn't have believed that I could do it. And I tell you honestly that it didn't take long for me to realize that most of the desires for food that I experience in a normal day have nothing to do with the needs of my body but everything to do with the desires of my tongue. And others who've learned to enjoy biblical fasting have experienced the exact same realization. Trust me, your first major fast will be a life-changing experience. And if it's done correctly, to the glory of God, that life-changing experience won't just be physical, it will be primarily spiritual. Okay, we're going long today, so let's finish up with number five, tools for everyday fasting. We've spoken on this topic in the past, we're talking about it now, and we will definitely revisit it in the future, and all of those resources will be available on the fasting page at celebrationofgod.com. These resources will obviously include our podcast episodes, but we also already have or will have fasting Bible readings, fasting journals, and fasting guides so that you can glorify God with your fasting better this year than you did the year before. Just working through this material has shown me once again just how much I have to learn and grow. And I'll tell you my biggest hang-up, forgetfulness. I, like you, am very busy, and so it's easy to simply wake up and do today what I did yesterday. But if you do that all the time, you'll be stagnant. And I believe that's the issue with most of our spiritual growth. We don't change ourselves to be different by the grace of God to the glory of God. We're too lazy or lackadaisical, apathetic, and unambitious in our worship of the Lord. So for me, it's all about intentionality. Most of the time, I have to schedule fasts in order to remember them. I don't really do well with impromptu improvisation. I need to plan and practice if I hope to successfully implement. That's where the holiday fasts are so incredibly helpful for me. They've been planned out for us. All we have to do is intentionally implement them to God's glory. So please share this episode on your favorite social media outlets so that other followers of Christ can learn how to worship the Lord with their fasting. And if you have any specific questions about fasting and worshiping God, don't hesitate to reach out to us at counselor at celebrationofgod.com. And obviously, join us next time as we seek to better know, love, and worship God and help the people in our lives do the same. 
To that end, we'll be discussing fasting and the holidays. If you want to know God better, celebrate him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry.